to the mystical realm of things that make you go woo. I'm your host, Emily, also known as Emily and Her Stars, an evolutionary astrologer, psychic medium, an insightful 6-4 projector who specializes in channeling cosmic messages that will unlock the boundless potential within you. When I'm not working with my amazing clients, I'm on a quest to unravel the sacred mysteries and ancient origins of the woo. Join me as we explore the rich tapestry of history, unfolding current events, captivating interviews, and sacred wisdom in the monthly energy reports. Brace yourself because this podcast is all about making you go woo too. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Things That Make You Go Woo. Today, we're embarking on a fascinating story through time to explore the history of the Ouija board. This enigmatic and sometimes eerie tool has captured the imagination of many and today we're going to uncover its secrets. So sit back, relax, and let's begin our adventure. We first have to dig into the history of automatic writing. Also called psychography, it's a psychic ability allowing a person to produce written words without consciously writing. Practitioners engage in automatic writing by holding a writing utensil and allowing spirits to manipulate the practitioner's hand. The instrument may be a standard writing tool or it may be one specially designed for automatic writing, such as a planchette or a Ouija board. The earliest evidence we have for automatic writing comes from China. Here, spirit writing, also called fuqi, is known as Chinese Ouija. Spirit writing has a long history in Chinese folk religion and is first recorded during the Lu Song Dynasty, about 420 to 479. A method of planchette writing, it directs a stick or a stylus, typically made from willow or peach branch, roughly resembling a dowsing rod which then writes Chinese characters in sand or incense ashes. Fuji writing became popular during the Song Dynasty, approximately 960 to 1279, when authors like Shen Kua, Su Shi, and others associated its origins with summoning Zai Gu, the Purple Maiden. Now, Fuji divination further flourished during the Ming Dynasty, and the emperor, who specially built a planchette altar in the Forbidden City. Although the practice of Fuchi writing was prohibited by the Qing Dynasty, it has continued and is currently practiced in Taoist temples in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Malaysia, as well as folk shrines in mainland China. Planchette writing is also mentioned in translations of the Golden Flower Meditation Manual that is used in modern practice in the United States as well. So, what is a planchette, you ask? Well, it comes from the French for little plank. It's a small, 
usually heart-shaped, flat piece of wood equipped with two wheeled casters that hold a pencil pointing downwards, and it's used to facilitate automatic writing. History claims that in the winter of 1852 to 53, the fervor of the modern spiritualism movement and spirit communications reached Europe, where the French educator and eventual founder of spiritism, Alan Kardak, recorded the invention of planchettes on the 10th of June, 1853. That night, Kardak witnessed a seance participant propose a more expedient alternative to the laborious process of alphabet calling and rapt responses. Now keep in mind, this is the system that was first invented by the Fox sisters when they would hear tapping or rapping on a wall. They would call out a letter and wait for the rapping or the tapped response to confirm the letters. You can imagine how long this would take to get even a word out. So instead, this gentleman secured a pencil to a small upturned basket, allowing multiple participants to cooperatively write out messages from the attending spirits. The idea produced astonishing results. And after some refinements to construct a more sturdy wooden plank, wood of the invent- word of the invention spread throughout Paris and into England, where a cottage industry sprang up to produce these devices. Planchettes came to America in about 1858, after spiritualist Robert Dale Owen and his friend observed the devices in use at seances in Paris, and he returned with several of them. Their friend, a Boston bookseller by the name of G.W. Cottrell, became the first to manufacture planchettes on a large scale in the United States the following year. In 1867, the British publication Once a Week published a sensational piece on planchettes. The article was reprinted in European and American newspapers, and by 1868, dozens of booksellers and toy manufacturers were producing the items to meet an insatiable demand on both sides of the Atlantic. Kirby and Company, the undisputed kings of planchette manufacturing, claimed to have sold over 200,000 in their first season alone. Planchettes took on a variety of forms during the height of their popularity. American planchettes were traditionally heart or shield shaped, but manufacturers produced a wide range of shapes and sizes, hoping to distinguish themselves in the highly competitive market of the late 1860s. Manufacturers touted the wonders and benefits of different materials, including various hardwoods, India rubber, glass, insulated casters, and various attachments meant to charge the devices or insulate the user from malevolent spirits. In Great Britain, planchettes took on the classical shapes popularized in early illustrations and newspaper depictions with round, blunt noses and flat backs, sort of triangular in shape. Regardless of their shape or country of origin, Almost all planchettes were equipped with brass casters and small wheels of bone or plastic. 
and their sometimes lavishly illustrated boxes were often packed with blank parchment, pencils, and a Ouija-like folding letter sheet. These all contained esoteric instructions, letting the users know the mysterious communicative powers of their now newly purchased items. Hi listeners, do you find venturing into the realms of spirit, intuition, and the mystical to be both exhilarating and intimidating? It's not uncommon during this phase to experience a lack of confidence, a feeling of isolation, overwhelmed by the abundance of spiritual knowledge, and even anxiety about being judged for discussing things that seem out of the normal. The Third Eye Library offers a supportive sanctuary where members can freely explore their spiritual curiosity, ask questions, seek guidance, and learn from a seasoned network of professionals in a safe and supportive environment. Guided by a coven of women healers, mentors, and entrepreneurs, you'll develop and nurture the self-assurance needed to embrace your unique journey towards enlightenment. Find out more and get your first month free at thirdeyelibrary.com. The library doors are open. Come join us. Welcome back. Where were we? Oh yes, planchettes. Those little wooden triangles that help us with automatic writing. In the aftermath of the Civil War in the United States, with so many husbands, fathers, and sons lost in the conflict's bloody battles, spiritualism, the belief that the dead can speak to the living through a medium, only gained in popularity with people desperate for a connection to their departed loved ones. During this time, the average lifespan was about 50 years, and mothers could easily give birth to 12 children and have six pass before they even made it to the age of five. Parlors were used for funerals nearly as often as they were for company. The use of talking boards was so common by 1886 that news reported the phenomenon taking over spiritualist camps in Ohio. It's in this context that we meet Charles Kennard, a man who always had his eye out for a chance to make a buck. But he was not the greatest nor the luckiest businessman. He might not have even been the most honest guy either, as we'll get into. The second child of a successful Delaware merchant, Kennard moved to Maryland's East Shore in the 1880s after developing a secret bone mix recipe for fertilizer. Now, in fairness to Kennard, nearly everyone in business claimed a secret recipe during this time frame. Just look at any of the hundreds of secret recipe headache remedies of the day. Following the initial success with his fertilizer, Kennard's Chestertown plant eventually went to auction due to a combination of drought, competition, and debt. But not all was lost, you see. A Prussian immigrant named E.C. Reich kept an office next to Kennard's in Chestertown's tiny business district. A furniture maker turned coffin maker turned undertaker, not an altogether atypical career progression for the day, Reich was also a tinkerer. 
And in 1886, during the period Kennard and Reich shared a hallway, newspaper reports began appearing about the talking board phenomenon sweeping Ohio. It is about this time that Kennard and Reich began collaborating and making at least a dozen of their own talking boards. Reich, at this point the biggest coffin maker in town, was making these on the side. And it's these prototypes that became the Ouija board. Unfortunately, Kennard left Chestertown for Baltimore in 1890 and began pitching what he called his talking board invention to potential investors. At this point, we lose sight of Reich as Elijah Bond, an attorney in Baltimore, takes an interest and invests in Kennard's talking boards. Kennard founds the Kennard Novelty Company the day before Halloween and claims to have invented the board with his new business partner, Elijah Bond, completely wiping Reich from this early history. What may have significantly helped this new duo was Bond's sister-in-law, spiritualist and medium, Helen Peters Nosworthy. Living in Baltimore, Helen Nosworthy became a medium and spiritualist herself. Her sister, Mary, wed Elijah Bond. Nosworthy became a stockholder in the Canard Novelty Company, but they needed a marketable name to manufacture this spirit board. One night in 1890, they decided to hold a seance and ask the board what it wanted to be called. Nosworthy repeatedly asked the board, and it answered, O-U-I-J-A. When they asked what that meant, the board answered, G-O-O-D-L-U-C-K. Nosworthy was wearing a locket at the time of the seance and even the time around this period, containing a portrait of English novelist Maria Louise Ramey, who was also known by the alias Ouija, whose signature seemed oddly close to Ouija. When the local patent office refused to patent the Ouija board, Elijah Bond and Helen Nosworthy traveled directly to Washington, D.C., where they are again denied. In order to approve it, the chief patent officer asked the board to spell out its, his name, which it did. Patent approved. Helen not only gets credit for earning the stamp of legitimacy from the federal government, certifying the board delivered as promised, but also for receiving the Ouija name from the board itself. Sometime after the patent was granted, Helen's family collection of Confederate buttons went missing. They asked the Ouija board who had stolen them, and the board implicated one of the family members. Helen refused to believe that the board and disavowed it, spending the rest of her life telling her family that the board told lies. In 1891, Helen married Ernest Nosworthy, a Shakespearean actor and later traveling salesman, and the duo relocated to Denver, Colorado. 
Nosworthy died in 1940. Little was known about her life or contributions to the Ouija board until the Robert Mulch of Talking Board Historical Society found correspondence from Ouija board inventors Charles Kennard and Elijah Bond. On September 22, 2018, the Talking Board Historical Society installed a memorial at Helen's grave, and it is visible today when you come to visit Denver. By the early 1890s, 2,000 Ouija boards were already being sold per week. William Fold, who worked for and invested in the Canard Novelty Company, eventually gained control of the Ouija business after the founder cashed out too early. William went on to make millions manufacturing the board in Baltimore and elsewhere, but only after his brother was cut out of the company. Their ensuing lawsuits were no mere spat. William's brother Isaac became so embittered that he had his baby daughter exhumed and relocated from the Fold family gravesite during a cemetery renovation. The two sides of the family would not speak again for 96 years. Tragically, William Fold would suffer a fatal accident at his Hartford Avenue factory when he claimed in a 1919 Baltimore Sun story that the Ouija board had told him to build, prepare for big business. Overseeing the installation of a flag, an iron railing gave way and he fell off the roof of the structure where a rib eventually pierced his heart. On his deathbed, he made his children promise to never sell the Ouija out of the family. Of course, Fold's family did eventually sell, but not for four decades. And when they did, it went to Parker Brothers, which promptly moved Ouija to its base of operations in Salem, Massachusetts in 1967. The first year it was headquartered in the town, infamous for its witch trials, Ouija sold 2 million boards. Now, by comparison, Monopoly, which had an early version invented in 1903, wasn't popular really until the Great Depression, when it kind of fulfilled a fantasy escapism. Ouija, on the other hand, was a sensation from the outset, long before even its first film appearances, which date back to Hollywood's beginnings. But Ouija's public image had always been complicated. Initially, the mysterious oracle was marketed as a game to enliven a party or encourage a little lighthearted intimacy for the romantic or would-be couple, who are often depicted in early advertisements with the board resting on their knees as they sit across from each other, both of their hands on the planchette. In fact, there's a famous Norman Rockwell painting, and he was fond of depicting these revealing moments of everyday life, and he has painted a well-dressed suitor and a young woman, chairs pulled face to face, pulling with a Ouija board for the cover of the Saturday Evening Post in 1920. Less well known is Ouija board's use as inspiration or as automatic writing tool by the acclaimed novelists and poets, such as Sylvia Plath, who wrote Dialogue Over a Ouija Board, and Pulitzer Prize winner James Merrill. 
Merrill used notes from Ouija consultation in his 560-page epic poem, The Changing Light at Sandover, which contained messages from W.B. Yeats and his friend Maya Duran and the Archangel Michael. But over time, the relative innocence of the Ouija board, or at least its nonpartisan relationship between good and evil, gave way to a more sinister reputation as Hollywood began utilizing it for darker purposes. After The Exorcist, in which actress Linda Blair's character Reagan explains to her mom how she used the family's Ouija board to ask questions of Captain Howdy, the demon who eventually takes possession of her soul, the board's occult status was cemented. Since then, it's shown up in more than 20 films and made countless appearances in the ever-growing number of paranormal-themed TV shows. Forums around Ouija-associated phenomenon populate the internet, of course. Most recently, the 2014 movie Ouija did so well at the box office that Ouija 2 also came out. (laughs) When it was released, the movie dramatically boosted board sales. Still, the most interesting thing about the Ouija board might be the latest research around it from the University of British Columbia that shows it actually does work, just not in the way we might assume. A few years ago, Sidney Fells, professor in electrical and computer engineering at University of British Columbia, brought out a Ouija board at a Halloween party attended by graduate students, including many who were foreign-born and unfamiliar with how it worked. They assumed it required batteries. No, no, you don't need batteries. It will move, he told them. I gave them some mystical explanation tied into Halloween, and they all had a good laugh. But lo and behold, when Fells returned later, the grad students were enthralled because the planchette was moving on its own, or so it appeared. Days later, still fascinated by the student's experience, Fells shared the story with colleague Ron Rensink, a psychology and computer science professor, and that got the ball rolling about whether the board could serve as a tool to look at unconscious knowledge. We didn't know if we'd find anything, but when we did, the results really surprised us. When study participants were asked to answer or guess at a set of challenging questions, they were correct about 50% of the time. But when responding while using the board, which participants believed had the ability to receive the correct answer from another person, teleconferencing via a robot or a Ouija partner, they scored correctly upwards of 65% of the time. In actuality, the robot was a ruse. It was not responding to the video conferencing player, but subtly amplifying the study participants' tiny unconscious movements. It was significant how much better they did on the questions. If you don't think so, consider the difference playing roulette when the odds are 50-50 versus (laughs) 65-35. The implication is that one's unconscious is much smarter than anyone knew, capable of pulling up bits of stored information not always accessible to the conscious mind. Of course, results in a 
follow-up study replicated the findings, which they then reported in the academic journal Consciousness and Cognition. Rensink believes the results open greater possibilities for further study. For example, is unconscious memory affected by Alzheimer's and other neurodivergent diseases in the same way as conscious memory? It's work that William Fold, the guy that fell from the factory roof and is considered the father of the Ouija, would probably appreciate. When asked directly by a reporter if he believed in the Ouija's mystical powers, he responded, I should say not. I'm no spiritualist. I'm a Presbyterian. (laughs) The discovery of the Ouija's ability to tap into unconscious knowledge is not the only development in the talking board's 125-year-old story, though. The reconciliation of William Fold's family with his brother Isaac's family after nearly a century of silence is another compelling occurrence. The two sides had long lost contact until Murch began posting his research on the web nearly two decades ago. That's when Stuart Fold, the grandson of Isaac, and Kathy Fold, the granddaughter of William Fold, separately reached out to Merch in hopes of learning more about their ancestors. At this point, Merch said, I was talking to each one individually at first without the other one knowing. I was aware of the feud, but I didn't want to upset either one of them until Kathy called one night and asked for Stuart's phone number. It turned out they were living five miles apart while growing up and didn't even know it. The two sides of the family, which now include great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of the brothers, have been getting together regularly ever since. While the Ouija board has its roots in Chinese history, it has clearly cemented itself into Western culture as a novelty and toy. Children are more apt to play with the board at slumber parties than a group of mediums hosting a seance. Maybe not in the spiritualist camp at Lilydale, but it certainly has found placement in horror movies and continues to rise to the top of pop culture every October as we near Halloween. This year, though, on October 30th, maybe you can pull out your Ouija board and ask Helen or Elijah or even Old Reich if they have any thoughts on the board. And remember, if you're ever in Denver, Make a trip to Helen's grave and the Ouija Memorial. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Things That Make You Go Woo. You can find out more about this episode and how to work with me at emilyandherstars.com or come join the incredible sacred community at thirdeyelibrary.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.